Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict here on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to subscribe, 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 subscribe. If you're not subscribed, click the subscribe button right now before you go any further. Click the subscribe button and click that bell for continue notifications. It's free to do that. There's no reason not to. And then you can have notifications whenever new videos come out so that you do not miss anything. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura. Very important doctrine. Actually, it's foundational to how we understand um, the Christian life, practice, and the Christian faith altogether. And if we get it wrong, we get other things wrong really wrong. And so it's really important that we maintain an understanding of Sola Scriptura, and it's really important that if we don't understand Sola Scriptura, that we really work to understand Sola Scriptura. It's a foundational doctrine, and it's very, very important that we understand it. But right now, at present, there is the issue of dueling solas. That is to say, there are two versions of Sola Scriptura currently being circulated, especially around the internet, where uh, these are almost two totally different doctrines on some points. Both of the doctrines recognize that Scripture is fundamental. Both of the doctrines recognize that Scripture is ultimate in terms of its authority for faith and life of the Christian. But both positions do not agree in terms of what Scripture is for, and neither position agrees as to what other authorities, if any, might be allowed to inform our interpretation of Scripture. Right? So we're going to go through this, and hopefully it's going to be helpful because again, this is very important to get to get right. I think what happens uh, in some cases where you have uh, the more biblicist understanding of of Scripture, you have those who will say, "Well, you know, there is no creed but the Bible, and uh, there is no no other authority for faith and life other than Scripture." It's always interesting that throughout the course of engaging individuals like that, they will they'll almost always appeal. To other authorities. And of course, they're assuming the their own authority in some measure in terms of their, their interpretive operation, right? So they're trusting their own conclusions that they draw from Scripture, and thus they possess some kind of authority in terms of what they believe. Whether they admit that or not is another question. But there are all sorts of authorities that exist. And what we want to do is we want to acknowledge that. And and part of the, here's the thing, part of the, part of the importance of acknowledging other authorities is so that we, is so that we place those authorities in the right position, not allowing them to usurp the position of scripture. Whereas if we're ignorant as to the other authorities, or if we suppress the truth of the other authorities, then we're more liable to allow those other unacknowledged authorities to usurp the position of Scripture in our own thinking. 
And that's what we don't want to do. It's kind of like philosophy, right? People are like, well, I don't have a philosophy. I don't do philosophy. Philosophy is bad. It's like, well, okay, well, there's a there's a philosophy operating in your in your intellectual background that you're not acknowledging, and it's causing you to draw false conclusions. So because you're not acknowledging the reality of philosophy and, and thus you, you claim not to have a philosophy when actually you do, you're actually brought to wrong or false conclusions. The same is true when, it, when, when, when we think about um, other authorities in biblical interpretation. So part of, part of the function or part of the utility of acknowledging other authorities in biblical interpretation is to realize that they do exist. And it's to also realize that they have a proper place and to the extent that we acknowledge them and know about them uh, and, and know what they are, then we can put them in their proper place in our own thinking such that we don't start to uh, obscure Scripture or rip Scripture down from its magisterial position. Okay, so uh, what I want to do is I want to organize the, the talk today. Um, by the way, isn't this very... It's Reformation Day, right? October 31st. Isn't this very much in the spirit of the Reformation? I think so. So what I want to do is I want to talk about the Reformational doctrine of Sola Scriptura. And then I want to contrast it with, an, with, with what I might call an emergent Sola Scriptura. And the Reformational doctrine of Sola Scriptura, we'll call it Sola Scriptura 1. And then this emergent Sola Scriptura, we'll call it Sola Scriptura 2. All right? Um... And we'll call these the dueling solas, all right? These are the dueling solas right now at present, and it's leading to a lot of confusion. So let's try to get this right. Let's try to understand both positions um, so that we can make right decisions in terms of what we believe. So Sola Scriptura 1, again, as I mentioned, is the position of the Reformation. You can read someone from William Ames to Francis Turretin to John Calvin uh, to John Gill, um, uh, to Franciscus Junius, and you will get this doctrine, I think, and you can test me, but I think I'm summarizing their position well uh, and accurately. Um, Sola Scriptura 1 is that position on Scripture that states Scripture is the highest authority, the highest authority in doctrine and practice. It is the norma normans or the norming norm. It is the norm that norms all other subordinate norms, or it is the, the king rule that norms all other subordinate rules, if we could put it that way. Um, there are, so that acknowledges that there are other authorities which must be considered, which not only are considered, but must be considered by the individual, by the individual Bible interpreter, and by the church at large, I think. Um, but those authorities themselves are subject to Scripture as witnesses are subject to the judge. And so these subordinate authorities are called the norma normata, or the normed norms, the ruled rules. There's the, there's the subordinate rules underneath the king rule of Scripture. Um, one of the things that I'll use to, to discuss Sola Scriptura 1 is the Reformational view of tradition. The Reformational view of tradition was Tradition 1, or T1, we can abbreviate it. And T1 stated that Scripture was magisterial, while like the writings and the commentaries and the doctrinal treatises of the fathers, the church fathers, were ministerial 
and they're helping us to understand the meaning of the magisterial scriptures, right? So uh, they themselves are subject to scripture, and they're use they're useful only insofar as scripture. Uh, agrees with them or only insofar as they agree with scripture, yet they can also help or serve function in terms of helping us as individuals um, gain a wider periphery as to what the biblical text is saying. And when I say gain a wider periphery, I mean that we as individuals can only consider so much at once, right? Like we, nobody, nobody, I, I, and I, I will, I'll stick my flag here. I don't think that anybody who subscribes to a statement of faith, um, and especially anybody who subscribes to a confession, whether it's the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, I don't think anybody who subscribes to a document like that has done all the exegesis needed to come to those same conclusions. In other words, they themselves have not done all the work that has been done over the last 500, 1,000, 2,000 years, which has caused Christians to come to those doctrinal conclusions from the scriptures. All right, there's an, there's an element of, of trusting history that goes along with the adoption of a, con, uh, of a confessional document. Like it or not, that's just the case. That's not to admit that that confessional document is equal with scripture, but it is to admit that there, there are other authorities that we have to understand are subordinate to Scripture as the chief authority, yet they are in some measure formative of what we believe. Um, they're somewhat formative of what we believe. Uh, I don't know a single person, whether it's just in my church or in all of the, uh, among all the pastors and the other churches that I know about and know of and, and, are, and even those I'm close to, I don't know a single person within that group who could say that, yes, they, uh, they approached Scripture as a, as a blank slate and, um, and came to the conclusion of Nicaea by themselves without any help from anybody else. All right, that's just not happened. In fact, that's impossible, and that's, that's an unbiblical um, position to take because the reality is, and we find this throughout the Scriptures over and over and over again, the Scriptures were not revealed to the individual. The scriptures are addressed to the church. The scriptures are addressed to a corporate body. And so they need to be read uh, in the same way or in a way that is proportionate to uh, who they're addressed to, namely a corporate entity, the church. All right, so um, so where was I? Where, where was I going with that? Well, Sola Scriptura 1 is the view that um, that there are other authorities. It grants that there are other th other authorities, but there, those authorities are considered norma normata, normed norms, and are subject to the chief authority and the chief king rule of Holy Scripture, the norma normans, or the norming norm. There is an emergent form of sola scriptura. We'll call it sola scriptura two, as I mentioned already. But this is an emergent sola scriptura because it's an innovation. It's a novel uh, view of Sola Scriptura. It's brand new. And this view of Sola Scriptura is, is the position 
that states that Scripture is not the highest. Notice in, in, in Sola Scriptura 1, I define Scripture as the highest authority. In Sola Scriptura 2, you have Scripture functioning as the only authority in doctrine and practice. Biblical interpretation cannot presuppose doctrines that would affect interpretational outcomes, and they cannot, and, and biblical interpreters cannot make their appeal to witnesses that help them to understand the meaning of Scripture and actually hold them accountable as to their own individual biblical exegesis, right? So Sola Scriptura 2, um, you know, I, I hesitate to call it new to Scriptura because that's a, that's a charge they've rejected, and I, wa I want to be fair to them. So I'm, I'm calling it Sola Scriptura, uh, but it, 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 it's similar to Solo or Nuda Scriptura in the sense that it really discounts the subordinate authorities. It is... I call it sola scriptura, however, because it does grant, at least in theory, it grants that extra-biblical considerations can be helpful. Biblical commentaries, confessions of faith, and so on. And so they'll say, well, those things can all be helpful, but in the final analysis, the, the arbiter of what the Bible means is the individual Bible interpreter notwithstanding considerations of other witnesses to the truth of Scripture? Even And this even goes for creedal witnesses. So, in other words, credence is given in Sola Scriptura 2 to the individual such that the individual is actually free to say, well, Nicaea, Chalcedon, uh, the Athanasian Creed, uh, the Second London Confession of Faith— um, those things might be helpful, but really, I'm interpreting Scripture in a way that puts me at a diametrically opposite position to them. And that's okay. That's totally okay. So, in other words, the individual really isn't held accountable at all, functionally isn't held accountable at all to uh, other authorities, to the subordinate authorities. Uh, the individual is is the one who gets to determine what the scripture means based on his or her own um, uh, biblical exegetical uh, excurses. Um, and, and, and some people have made the charge, and I think it's a valid charge, that that's, that's nothing but taking the authority of the papacy and individualizing it. It's, it's, it's committing the same principal error of the papacy uh, by making an individual the sole arbiter of the meaning of scripture. Um, and so that's the danger we want to avoid. So when we're talking about individual exegesis, when I go and I write, read my Bible by myself, which I do all the time, and I encourage everybody to do it. I encourage the members of my church to do it, right? I encourage anybody who listens to this, go read your Bibles. But also understand that you are not unaccountable. I'm not unaccountable. Uh, I am accountable to what God has done through his bride. I'm accountable to that in some way. I'm accountable in the sense that I can't just brush all that aside and excuse myself from the discoveries of the Christian church over the centuries. Um, that's not only an arrogant position, uh, but it's also a very dangerous position because every single heretic throughout the history of the church has done that. Every single heretic has done that. And every single heretic, for the most part, has held up the scriptures as the as the only authority. See, this is my only authority. I'm accountable to no man. And as a result, they end in shipwreck because they're fallible, sinful human beings 
and their fallibleness and their sin is taken to its logical end in their unhinged process of biblical exegesis. That's what we want to avoid. I'm not saying everyone who holds to Sola Scriptura 2 does that. In, in practice, I think a lot of them don't. In practice, I think a lot of people who hold to Sola Scriptura 2 verbally, in practice, I think they behave more like people who hold to Sola Scriptura 1. I mean, you can go on Twitter today. It's it's Reformation, you know, it's 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 like Reformation Day, right? Or what is that? Was that yesterday? I don't know when Reformation Day is. Um, for someone who likes history, that's pretty bad. But um, let's see. Let's see. I'll just do it right now. I always, I always, uh, I always get it. I always get it wrong because I get the thirty-first and the thirtieth. Okay, today, today's Reformation Day. So I was right. Um, okay, so you can go on social media today, uh, and you can scroll through something like Twitter or Facebook, and you can see all the people who would hold to more of a Sola Scriptura two position, saying things like, "We stand on the shoulders of the reformers," and it's Reformation Day, and and we 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 owe a, owe a debt of gratitude to those who have come before us, and and so when you say you stand on the shoulders of somebody, you 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 are acknowledging that there is another authority. Uh, in addition to scripture, but you would also acknowledge that that authority, those shoulders upon which you stand, are standing themselves on scripture. So they're subordinate authorities, they're, they're normed norms. And so a lot of Sola Scriptura 2 people, I want to be very fair here, a lot of, a lot of Sola Scriptura 2 people who in theory are Sola Scriptura 2, in practice they act like Sola Scriptura 1 people, right? They, they, they would agree on a functional level more with myself and others. Um, so, uh, with all that, uh, with all that, um, with all that aside, and, and now that that's kind of, uh, now that I've kind of laid that all out, Sola Scriptura 1, Sola Scriptura 2, <clears throat> we can move on. Um, now, uh, one of the problems, and, and when I say move on, I really want to move on with some criticism of Sola Scriptura 2. Again, I don't. I think people who hold to Sola Scriptura 2 and are, are consistent with it are in a very dangerous position. I think some have fallen prey to affirming heterodox things. I don't think everybody, all of them have. I just, but some of them have uh, neo-canonicism, um, uh, subordinationism, uh, and so on. But, um, and so that, for that reason, I want to, I want to level some criticism at Sola Scriptura 2, now that we have some definitional remarks out of the way. Um, but, but regarding Sola Scriptura 2, it's, it's commonly, especially those who are consistent with it, it's commonly assumed that when you look at other authorities, the subordinate authorities, like the church fathers, it's often assumed that the fathers were dealing with problems that are irrelevant to our own day. Um, so, and, and those problems that they were dealing with were unique to their own situation in form and substance even. And so it led them to conclusions that may or may not be valid for today. I think this is a, this is a really, really bad view of history. I don't even think it's a biblical view of history because when you look at something like, um, when you look at, when you look at texts like, um, when you look at tests like Ecclesiastes, um, uh, let's see, 
when you look at texts like Ecclesiastes, well, throughout uh, Ecclesiastes, it's a, it's a phrase that's mentioned all the time uh, in 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 Ecclesiastes. Uh, but in Ecclesiastes chapter one verse nine, you have texts that will say things like "There's nothing new under the sun." And with the sola scriptura people, uh, the sola scriptura two people, you'll have some who will say, "Well, the, these fathers were dealing with issues that are are different from our own in form and substance. They were completely different from what we're dealing with today, and that led them to conclusions that are not valid today." So, okay, there's a problem there because that's like. Uh, that's like a subtle doctrine of the development of doctrine, uh, almost along the lines of John Henry Newman, which was the cardinal papist who converted from Anglicanism to Roman Catholicism in the 19th century. Uh, the, the subtle doctrine that I'm talking about of doctrinal development is to say, well, their understanding of doctrine, which they understood, by the way, to be essential— uh, their understanding of doctrine, which they understood to be essential, um, has developed to a point now that if we were to reformulate it or, or formulate it in their terms, it would be invalid. Um, it would be invalid. It may be valid for them, but a based on the times, a necessary evolution has taken place in doctrinal development that renders their dogmatic conclusions not to be totally uh, dis not to be totally disregarded or totally uh, uh, irrelevant, but to be seriously suspect in terms of their applicability to their own to, to our own time. And so you'll have James White who will write things like, quote, "But it is here that we must insist upon this maxim, right? Because and he's talking about giving due uh, giving history its due in a in a biblical and, and proper way." Um, and he says here, he says this, but it is here that we must insist upon this maxim. Let the early church fathers be the early church fathers. That is, we must allow them to speak in their own context to their own battles in their own language. We cannot demand that they answer our questions and engage in our conflicts, nor can we assume that the battles back then were identical in form and substance to ours today. Okay, so just on a biblical note, Ecclesiastes 1.9, that which has been is what will be, that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Well, of course, there are new things accidentally, like there are new things externally, and and principal problems manifest their, their self, themselves in, in diverse ways, right? For example, like adultery is still a problem, but it manifests itself now through use of technology that didn't exist 2,000 years ago. Um, so like Timothy in Ephesus is dealing with people with an, adulter uh, an adulterous culture, um, but that adulterous culture is not using the World Wide Web to commit their adultery. Whereas now people use the World Wide Web to commit their adultery, all right? So um, so there are there are accidental changes like that in terms of how problems manifest themselves, but the problems, the issues themselves are not different. And and, and so this is why, like, when I'm looking at, at people who, who want to say we're sola scriptura two, or they take that sola scriptura two position, yet then they say something like, 
there is they, they say something that would seem to imply there's very little continuity between our own day and 1500 years ago or a thousand years ago uh, in in principle there's very little continuity and that means that really it's left up to us to develop doctrine in such a way that befits our own age because there's nothing that we can glean from them through the resourcement movement that's going to apply to our current era. That's a very disconcerting place to be in. Like, if I think that our problems today are such that nobody's ever dealt with them before, can you imagine, like, think about the comfort that you derive from knowing that the first century church dealt with the same issues that we deal with today. Um, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing principally new that's confronting us that the church in the first five centuries of the New Testament church didn't deal with. Um, and so that there's a great deal of comfort in that, in a sense, a cultural comfort at least, because we know as a church that there's nothing new under the sun, that God's going to lead his people just like he did 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago. And since there's nothing new under the sun, there's nothing that's going to uh, surprise God, but there's also nothing that's going to surprise, really, at a principle level, there's nothing that should surprise the church. Um, maybe in terms of how issues manifest themselves, things will be surprising. But in principle, there's nothing new here. There's nothing new here. And, uh, and so... We can, we can look back in time, given the Ecclesiastes 1.9 maxim, we can look back in time and say, look at the issues that Thomas was dealing with. Look at the issues that Calvin was dealing with. Look at the issues that Z Girolamo Zanke was dealing with, or Heinrich Bullinger, or Augustine, going back long before them. Uh, look at the issues that, um, you know, Irenaeus and... Uh, Polycarp and, and all of the earliest church fathers were dealing with. You know, think about, they were dealing with a lot of the same issues we are today, and we can look back and see how they dealt with those things from the scriptures, and we can glean much for our own selves as we deal with our present culture and as we try to apply scripture now in light of what's going on in our own day, right? So, there's a there's a definite continuity of history. Scripture makes that very plain, um, and and Scripture itself testifies to the continuity that we have with others who have gone before us. It tells us to seek out wisdom from others. It tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. It says that f people who deny the wisdom of former generations are utter fools, um, and so we have every biblical precedent to hold to a sola scriptura one view of Sola Scriptura. And, and that is to say, look, we have the Bible, right? We have Scripture. Uh, we read it by ourselves as individuals, but we also understand that we read with other individuals. And we don't only read with other individuals that sit next to us in church. We read with other individuals that sit next to us uh, in, in terms of the heavenly assembly or the heavenly communion. Um, we, 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 we interpret scripture with those who lived 2000 years ago, with those who lived 1500 years ago, with those who lived a thousand years ago. We don't interpret scripture solely by 
those subordinate authorities. We interpret Scripture with those subordinate authorities, always understanding that they themselves are subject to Scripture. I mean, that's what they're doing, right? They're, they're deriving their theology from the text of Scripture. And we're just saying, we want to do the same thing. We want to derive our theology from the text of Scripture. How'd they do it? How can they help us? How can they inform us as we do that, right? Uh, and, and that's what's important about a confession of faith, right? So the work to get to the doctrinal conclusions, the dogmatic conclusions in a confession of faith has already been done. And we should actually, uh, we, we, we shouldn't, in terms of, in terms of um, trying to, we shouldn't try to rework the wheel, uh, we shouldn't try to to rework the wheel in one sense, in that we shouldn't try to uh, assume that we are the ones responsible for working up the wheel. But at the same time, we should go through the process that they went. We should try to and desire to go through the same exegetical and contemplative process that the Puritans, for example, did, so that we can, with them, interpret Scripture and come to a more sure understanding of the doctrines that we confess in something like the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. All right, so um, I think it's, by the way, that, that I didn't cite it uh, when, I, when I finished quoting it, but that quote from uh, James White came from the, uh, I- I- the first issue of Pro Pastor, the Grace Bible Theological Seminary Journal. It's the first article in there, I think, and it's uh, page three uh, where I got that, so um, just so nobody can say I didn't, I didn't cite it. I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and stop there because we're almost at 30 minutes. Uh, again, if you haven't subscribed to the channel, please please do so. Also, bear in mind that um, this is a podcast as well. So if you don't want to watch it on YouTube, you can watch it or listen to it on iTunes or uh, Spotify or Podcast Addict or Anchor.fm, wherever you, you get your podcasts at. So God bless you guys. Have a wonderful uh, Reformation Day.